And we lost eight students this past year through the midst of all this stuff that's going on, eight students. And each time it doesn't get any easier. And in fact, one of the things that we used to do is we just used to send an email if you want to have a, you know optional staff meeting, and then we'll just keep it pushing. And um, we felt like Henry High School, we needed to do something a little bit differently. Start to name them. We start to name it. We start to call it out. We start to say their names. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to any of you who are watching for the first time or listening for the first time. Welcome to the all of the above family. And those of you who are returning, especially those of you teachers who are on summer break, shout out to you. We love y'all. We see y'all. Jeff, man, it's it's summertime. It's like 4th of July-ish, depending on when the person might be listening to this or watching this. And Jeff, I, I just want to know, how many times have you said the Pledge of Allegiance on this 4th of July, Patriot? Uh, <laughs> see, you always you always start the show, Manuel, with some instigating, you know. I just want to make sure you're a loyal Patriot, Jeff. It's like middle Are school lunch Are you afraid here? of saying yeah. it? You, you're the kid who walks up to the lunch table and is like, yo, did you hear what so-and-so said about you? What you going to do about it? Most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that is how Dr. Rustin starts Yo, I heard show. he's a Marxist. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I will be saying the Pledge of Allegiance never again ever in my life, uh, Manuel, just for the record. Um, and although, you know, if you want to, it's a free country and I support your right to do that. Um so, yes, exactly zero pledges of allegiance for me. Um, I will be um, contemplating uh, deeply America's history of colonialism, manifest destiny, and slavery, um, as well as, uh, you know, patriarchy and misogyny and xenophobia and uh, exploitation of migrant labor, uh, et cetera, et cetera, while enjoying, um, you know, a organic, natural uh, all-beef hot dog. Um, man, over, that is some over, lefty over this stuff right of July. there, man. How about that? That's a lot of lefty <laughs> stuff right there. That's, yeah, actually, it reminds me, though, uh, I think it was, what, two summers ago? At least two? Two years ago? I don't know. But you had that uh, show and tell on this show where you discussed the history of the Pledge of Allegiance in American schools. So for anybody who hasn't really been with us with our show since like the beginning, if you missed that, you definitely want to check that out. I don't remember what episode number it was, but it dropped around the 4th of July. I guess two years ago, something like that. But you really laid out yeah. the the history of the use of the Pledge of Allegiance in American schools, which I think a lot of folks don't really realize just, um, yeah, how fraught and how political that history is. So yeah, anyways, that was good stuff. But yo, man, we got a brand new show right now. We're now about to talk about the Pledge of Allegiance on this episode. What is on the agenda, Jeff? Well, man, well, today we got a great episode for folks as usual, and I'm super excited on two fronts. One, as a former high school government teacher, and this being the season of the year when the Supreme Court issues its rulings, we have not one, but two Supreme Court cases related to our field of education that we're going to be talking about in our do now, super nerdy, exciting there. 
And perhaps more importantly, we have an amazing guest coming on with us. Uh, we have none other than Principal Yusuf Abdullah, who is coming to us from uh, my hometown, the Twin Cities uh, of Minneapolis and St. Paul. He, of course, coming from Minneapolis. He is the principal of Patrick Henry High School in North Minneapolis. And uh, for folks who maybe aren't familiar with that region, um, North Minneapolis is a, uh, a fascinating community, um, historically um, black community, um, you know, student population, mostly um, black and Southeast Asian. And uh, what's interesting is they are just miles away, of course, from the epicenter of America's racial reckoning, um, the site of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and of course, we've just recently had the sentencing um, of Derek Chauvin. And then also, uh, Patrick Henry High School is the school where Dante Wright was formerly a student. And the school is literally just steps down the street from Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, which of course in recent months also has captured uh, you know, the nation's attention and outrage around continuations of police violence against um, black men and black people more generally. So uh, Principal Yusuf Abdullah is gonna come talk to us uh, about what it's like to lead through a pandemic, what it's like to lead in the epicenter of the nation's racial reckoning, um, and just drop some, some knowledge and wisdom for us, man. So it's gonna be great. You definitely don't wanna miss it. Yeah, sounds dope as always. But at first we have a do now where we take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's do now. Let's take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we gonna do the do now today? Well, Manuel, we, of course, have a pop quiz today. All right, thinking caps on, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, time to test our knowledge and mastery. Okay, okay. Summertime assessments. Look at That's that. Right. Summertime <laughs> assessments. Let's do it, Jeff. What's the first well, quiz question for today? Welcome to summer today? school, Manuel. Welcome to summer school. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> first question today, Manuel, is uh, can shouting the F word at home get you in trouble at school? Man, no. I can say whatever the I want when I'm at home. I wish a would try to, man, get the, come on, man. Nah, of course not. What the? Ah, uh, yes. Well, well played, uh, Dr. Rusty. Well played. Um, you know, I, so according to the United States Supreme Court, chock full of the likes of Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Neil Gorsuch, and uh, all the rest of them uh, really racist uh, white people. Uh, the answer is they agree with you. Uh, no, you should not uh, be able to get in trouble for that at home. So we're going to get into this right now, Manuel. And this story comes to us from some good reporting by Andrew Chung and, uh, and Reuters. And the U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled in favor of a Pennsylvania teenager named Brandy Levy, who sued after a profanity-laced social media post got her banished from her high school's cheerleading squad for a year. The justices ruled eight to one that the punishment that Mahoney area school district officials gave to Levy for her social media post, which was made on Snapchat at a local convenience store on a weekend, violated her free speech rights under the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. Now, the case involved the free speech rights of America's roughly 50 million public school students in 
in the internet and in the sort of social media era. Many schools have argued that their ability to curb bullying, threats, cheating, and harassment, all frequently occurring online, of course, should not be limited to just the physical school grounds. The justices preserve the authority of public schools to sometimes regulate speech that occurs away from campus. In fact, they declined to endorse a lower court decision that found that the First Amendment guarantee of free speech prohibited punishing students for what they say off campus. Justice Breyer wrote in the ruling, when it comes to political or religious speech that occurs outside school or a school program or activity, the school will have a heavy burden to justify intervention adding also that the school's regulatory interests remain significant in some off-campus circumstances. The ruling left the door open to future cases to better define the scope of that power. So Manuel, in a, in a world where, you know, people feel in all kinds of way about the Supreme Court, right? Especially after, uh, you know, the, the stolen Obama seat and, um, you know, Folks are talking about packing the court and this and that. Uh, but here we get an eight to one ruling that um, I think, you know, many folks who are more sort of um, liberal on the spectrum of thinking about free speech uh, might agree with. Um, so what say you? Yeah, so I, I'd certainly agree with this. And this is maybe a little bit surprising, maybe a little bit. It, I, I'm at least surprised that it was eight one, that it was like so overwhelming in support of this this the student here. Now, this student, when she was 14, she tried out for the varsity cheer team. She didn't make varsity, so she was on JV, and she was quite upset about that. So on a weekend, out about in town, she like posted something on Snapchat, uh, middle finger and, and some bleepity bleeps in there about the <laughs> cheer team and the school and all kinds of stuff. And they took her off the team for a year, or they, you know, they tried to banish her from the team. So part of me is like, well, yeah, you know, if I'm the cheerleading coach, and somebody on my JV squad was like bad mouthing the team, kind of makes sense that they shouldn't be on the team anymore. But that's not really what this is about. This is really about whether or not students are able to say what they want and express their frustrations with life and with school on the weekend, on their personal time online, and whether or not a school could punish them for that. So I'm very pleased to see that the court is, is maintaining that schools have a very high burden when it comes to doing something about student speech that is is private, that is off, off uh, school grounds and, and happening away from the classroom because we want to maintain that high burden. Because imagine imagine if this court that, as, as you referenced, has quite a few individuals on there who should not be on there for various reasons. Imagine if this court had come down on the side of like, no, the school was fully within their rights to suspend this this teenager for what they said on Snapchat, a post that was only live for 24 hours and it was off campus and all that. Imagine if they said the school can do that. Imagine what other schools then would perhaps be able to do when it comes to students posting on TikTok, posting on YouTube, having their own podcasts, all kinds of stuff that young people do nowadays. Imagine if the court would have said, yeah, schools could totally suspend students and punish students for what they say on those platforms. That would be a very dark world, I think. So 
I'm pleased to see that the court basically said, nah, man, we got to cut that out. Like, and I like that they clarified that. It's not, they're not saying that schools can't ever intervene when there is student speech happening online, but that burden is still a high burden. So of course, if a, a, a student is saying something, posting to social media about like violence that they want to commit, or of course, if they're cyber bullying and, and things of that nature, schools can still um, intervene in those cases. So I like that the court like clarified, like, yes, that this isn't saying that students can say anything and everything they want to say online, because of course there's instances where we need adults to intervene based on the speech that, that um, was spoken or posted or whatever. So in any case, yeah, looking at this court and looking at that one vote, that one was was your favorite justice, if I'm not mistaken. Um, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think you are a, 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 a <laughs> Justice uh, Thomas Stan. So, oh, um, you know, there was, there are times, there are many times where I sit and think and I look at what's happening with regards to voter suppression, with regards to the quote unquote stop to steal stuff. And there are times where I think, wow, this is really going in a very bad direction and we are gonna be in a really active, fascist, dystopian reality very soon. And there are times where my mind goes there, like this is all bad. And this here is is not saying, this, this case here, this decision doesn't by any means preclude any of that from happening, but this decision, perhaps in my nightmares was an opportunity for the court to go ahead and say, yes, schools can absolutely limit speech off campus. And then you have areas like in Florida where the governor uh, recently said like, you know, schools and you know, I think I think universities, I don't think it's K-12, but where universities, the students and professors have to complete this like diagnostic about their political beliefs or whatever. Like imagine the court saying like, yes, you could totally suspend students and punish students for what they say um, in terms of their political speech off campus. Like that would be the the very dark dystopian future that I thought we were marching to. We might still be marching there, but at least it's not as fast of a march as I might have worried it was. But what do you think? Yeah, yeah I, I like that framing you concluded with there. Uh, we're definitely still marching <laughs> in the in the like yeah. downward spiral of right wing authoritarianism for sure right now. But this is surprisingly a, a slowing of <laughs> of the march uh, by this very right wing and not at all, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, co-conspiratorial, shall we say, uh, yeah. Supreme Court. Uh, and also, can we just take a moment and laugh at like your boy Clarence Thomas once again, just proving he like he not only is he maybe the obvious choice for like worst black person ever. He want like he continues to like rack up credentials to just prove how much he sucks on every level. And well, so. Um, you know, I mean, he's just a ridiculous clown, man. What can we say? So, um, so I, yes, I too was surprised uh, to, to a certain extent that the court ruled this way. But also, this is like an eminently reasonable opinion, at least from my perspective. So, the the free speech, uh, you know, enthusiast in me says um, they got it right in terms of um, siding with the student here. Like she's at home under the purview of her parents doing things outside of school that that were, you know, it may be flirted with the border of like, is was she coming into sort of the virtual school space with this particular act of speech? Maybe because it was about school, but also, you know, it clearly wasn't something that was like instigating some kind of safety issue um, at the school campus. You know, she wasn't telling people, let's go burn down the school or, you know, something, uh, uh, you know, inciting of an incident in that way. Um, 
So to me, that seems like obviously the right answer. Now, I also, especially as a former administrator, Manuel, I really appreciate the nuance uh, that, at least as I understand it, the court has built into this decision. We'll see where subsequent cases, you know, uh, help bring definition to what this nuance actually means, because I will, you know, I will tell you, and I'm sure you've, you've seen things like this as well, Manuel, that, you know, Monday mornings were always, honestly, some of my least favorite times to be a school administrator from the standpoint of like disciplinary stuff in school mm. because all this stuff pops off <laughs> over the weekend on you know and obviously when I was a principal we didn't have TikTok yet you know it was it was more like Facebook and Snapchat um, but all this stuff pops off on social media and you have no no window into it. And kids come in at 8 a.m. on Monday, like ready to fight over, you know, over some nonsense that, uh, you know, you, you, you felt sort of robbed of your opportunity to like intervene before there was a problem. Right. Um, and so from that standpoint, you know, I do think there is an interest of schools and of school systems to have some say about what is happening in the social media space. However, there is also a limit <laughs> that, that I think needs to really be upheld and the, the kind of level of scrutiny, which I think the court has, has come down in the right place here, needs to err on the side of protecting the free speech rights of, of students um, and not allowing the intrusion of school into every aspect of, of people's you know, online life. But there is a lot of stuff that happens on social media that can result in fights, bullying, um, you know, suicidal ideation, cutting, self-harm, running away from home, sexual exploitation, like all kinds of stuff that comes into school with the kids when they come back the next day, right? And so, you know, I don't know where the line exactly is, but when you looked at this case, it felt to me like, mm, that's, that's crossing the line, right? The school had crossed the line. Um, that like the appropriate response for this should have been, the coach and the team maybe having some kind of process, you know, a circle or something where they sit down and say like, hey, this happened. This was messed up. Like, let's talk it out. You know, here's yeah. here's what it would mean to be a part of this team. Can you be a part of this team? Right. Um, and and how do you make it right with your teammates to have been like F you, you know, on on social media? But that I think they went too far with, the you know, with just these sort of blanket bands. So. That's where I fall. I'm surprisingly okay with what the Supreme Court did. Yeah, yeah. Surprisingly, same here, same here. And yeah, absolutely. The cheer team and the administrators could have had a conversation. This student was only 14. Like what? I mean, I'm just so glad I didn't have social media when I was 14. Like I'm so glad I didn't <laughs> have social media. And especially, yeah. and now I'm really glad that at least for the time being, the court is saying like, yeah, we can't just suspend students willy-nilly off of their social media activity because like that's just it's a wild world out there man on this yeah. on the internets so glad i didn't have to deal with that so much i mean we had the internet i'm not that old but you know social media and all that stuff you know what i'm saying now you are that old we didn't really have the internet in high school man <laughs> <laughs> there, there was like three websites when we were in high school <laughs> I'm up there. I'm up there. No need to remind folks. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Don't, don't, don't try to hide it, man. Well, own, own your grumpy old man this year, okay? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, all right, so we have another quick quiz question, though, Jeff. So next question, next question. Question I'm going to ask you is, um, can your college make you work 
without offering you compensation? Uh, now I know on the last answer you were like bleepity bleep, no, <laughs> you know, all of that. That that's what I want to say right here. But um, you know, in my personal experience, I'm gonna say for some students, yes, they can. Yeah, yeah, kind of depends on who you are. Um, in this case, we're talking about college athletes, all right? Student athletes. So let's get into it, all right? This deals with another uh, Supreme Court decision that recently came down. And in this case, the Supreme Court has unanimously ruled that the NCAA, which is the National Collegiate Athletic Association, cannot prohibit its member schools from providing athletes with certain forms of education-related benefits, such as paid post-grad internships, scholarships for graduate school, or free laptops or musical instruments. Now, this decision did not involve cash payments to college athletes, but it may pave the way for a future Supreme Court ruling on whether college athletes should be able to earn money for playing sports, either directly from their universities or through lucrative endorsement deals. Now, under the NCAA's existing rules, universities generally are allowed to provide athletes with scholarships covering tuition while they are NCAA eligible, and they are allowed to cover basic expenses like textbooks and room and board, but most other forms of compensation are strictly prohibited under the NCAA's existing guidelines. Now, writing for the court, Justice Neil Gorsuch said that the NCAA, quote, seeks immunity from the normal operation of the antitrust laws. And immunity, which he went on to say, is justified neither by the antitrust law nor the previous opinions of the Supreme Court. Justice Brett Kavanaugh added that the sports traditions near and dear to alumni and others, quote, cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student athletes who are not fairly compensated. Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate. He added, the NCAA is not above the law. So Jeff, as you might recall, we've had discussions on this show before about student athletes in college and the various ways in which we are still fighting for justice in the college level, in the college arena with regards to student athletes. And in this case, the Supreme Court says, look, man, the NCAA's very strict rules against uh, compensating student athletes for their education-related uh, costs and, and, and whatnot, the, the court says, yeah, man, that's that's not cool. Not cool at all. And this was a unanimous decision. Even your boy, Justice, Justice Clarence Thomas, agreed <laughs> that the NCAA is tripping when it comes to not compensating student athletes. So what are your thoughts on this on this case here? Yeah, well, my first thought is uh, Manuel has lost his mind, people call it Clarence Thomas, <laughs> my boy. So we just need to set the record straight right here, right now. Uncle Uncle Clarence Thomas uh, is nobody's boy, uh, except, you know, maybe Massa in the big house. Uh, but that's a, a whole different story. So um, congratulations to Clarence Thomas for, for not being a clown on this decision. And I have to say, yet again, uh, the fact that I would agree, at least in part, with uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett and the likes on this is kind of staggering. Didn't see that coming, but, you know, okay. Uh, as a former college athlete, Manuel, and I, you know, I will say I, you know, I played football at Dartmouth College, Certainly not a school whose football team, you know, is bringing in billions of dollars or who is on, you know, ESPN and, you know, CBS and ABC and all that. 
on a weekly basis, right? Like different, totally different scale in terms of dollars. Um, however, in terms of the time commitment that, you know, that athletes give to the sport, um, you know, comparable to Division One athletes uh, anywhere else. And the, you know, physical toll and sacrifice that, uh, that players make. I mean, I got joint pain today that comes from when I played football, right? And uh, thankfully, I, you know, I don't believe I am suffering from any type of CTE or concussion-related issues, but that's somewhere in the back of my mind is a question mark of like, man, could that be an issue for me, right? And I definitely got zero dollars um, or zero compensation for, um, you know, for the time, effort, sacrifice um, involved in playing. Now, that's not to say that there's simp there's zero benefits for athletes for, you know, for playing, right? Like there, there you know, of course, there are some benefits that come from, from playing. But in a situation where you have the NCAA, which I think is just simply a crooked cartel of an organization, man, that, uh, you know, makes billions of dollars and pays its top executives millions of dollars every year and coaches at big time, you know, major state universities and major private universities are making millions of dollars a year just for coaching. Then they're also running camps. Then they've got endorsement deals. Then they've got consulting gigs. I mean, these folks are extremely wealthy um, and, you know, in the relative sense, at least. Right. Um, and when they are able to fully capitalize off of the unpaid labor of athletes and we're talking, you know, primarily what we're talking about is men's football and men's basketball, um, you know, to a lesser extent, other sports, including, you know, women's basketball and, and other things. But we're these are the major revenue sports, right? Um, where you see them on TV and we're talking about billion dollar TV deals and conferences like the Big 12 and the Big 10 and the Pac-12 and the SEC have their own television networks, okay? Um, and players get none of that. Not only do they get none of it, they get kicked out, right? And, and talked about as criminal if they do even the smallest thing like sign jerseys on the side and get, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever, right? Um, and they get castigated in the, in the media. Um, you know, this is just such an, a, an obviously ridiculous predatory scheme that the NCAA is, you know, orchestrating uh, among major universities. And we talked about this in great detail in our recent episode with, um, with Dave Zirin. We also um, had on Professor Eddie Como from UC Riverside, uh, who talked a bit about this with us as well. Um, but, it, you know, it's so obvious that this is wrong, both morally wrong and like against the principles of capitalism, which we supposedly love so much, right? Um, that even the likes of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh were like, this is wild, you can't do this, right? Think about how much they <laughs> support corporations doing whatever they wanna do, okay? And even they looked at this situation and said, this is wrong. So this particular decision, I think is just the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg, because all we're talking about here is like universities giving students a laptop, right? Or, you know, some kind of work study gig or whatever, right? We're not, we're not talking about actual compensation. Um, but 
it does lay, I think, a, a foundation for some next legal steps to uh, to expand the rights of student, you know, quote unquote, student athletes, the rights of people who are laboring for a university to be compensated for not only the labor that they perform, but the risks they take on to their health, the um, you know, intangible benefits they bring to the pride and the alumni base of the university, the endorsement deals that they can earn, all of that. So. I'm excited. This is one step, not nearly far enough yet, but it's it's a you know it's a chink in the armor, so to speak, uh, of the NCAA, which is just an organization that, frankly, is it's utterly illegitimate um, in this country, in, in my mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of what this means within the realm of education, now we're not a a sports podcast because if we were, we'd be talking about my five-time Super Bowl champion, San Francisco 49ers and how they're going to take it all this year. Um, we're an education podcast and just looking at it, you know, through the lens of education, I teach high school and many of my students go on to college. Some of them go on to play college sports, sometimes for like a big, you know, division one uh, power five conference team, sometimes for schools that I hadn't heard of, small liberal arts colleges and in the Midwest that I'm not even familiar with, but that have sports programs for sure. And if a student is going off to college and that college really wants that student, if the student is just a really high achieving student, they might get a full ride academic scholarship and then their, their you know, books and, and tuition and all that stuff is covered. And if they want, they can make a ton of money on the side. They could be a, a Twitch streamer and make a ton of money or be a big time YouTuber and make a ton of money doing that and have all these other jobs and do all these other things, despite the fact that they are getting a full ride for that university. However, a college athlete cannot do that. A college athlete who has the full tuition to attend whatever school and play for their team, they're not allowed to make all this money on the side through through other means or through you know licensing their name image and likeness and all that stuff which we've discussed before which is just totally like it doesn't make any sense like the amount of of free labor that these athletes are given to these colleges and a lot of folks who maybe don't really watch sports and might think like well it's not really free labor they're getting tuition paid and and you know this and that whatever but especially when we're talking about sports like football that are so physically brutal the, the, when you try to you know weigh the costs and weigh the benefits, you see that it's just they've been getting a raw deal for a very, very, very long time. And I love that even though this is a very narrow ruling, this only is about compensation for education-related benefits, those benefits might include paying for the student's law school or graduate program. So I have known students in the past who have been accepted to whatever college for undergrad and were so highly regarded that certain colleges, colleges have said, if you attend our school, we will also grant you admission to our medical program and uh, cover the tuition for that. So that exists already. But for college sports, that hasn't been allowed. Schools haven't been allowed to say like, okay, if you come and, and attend our college, we're also going to cover your master's in social work, or we're going to also cover, you know, whatever. They haven't been allowed to do that. So why should a student be allowed that for their academic talents, but not be allowed that for their athletic talents when they've already met the academic qualifications for that school? It just doesn't make any sense. So I love that the yeah. Supreme Court also looked at this and was like, yo, this don't make no damn sense. And the NCAA's arguments are just so faulty. Like they're, they keep talking about amateurism and how that's what the consumer wants and the, the court's like, yo, you can't just not pay them or not compensate them based on what like the consumer wants. Like what other yeah. business is allowed to say like, oh yeah, we don't pay our cooks because you know our, our consumers like cooks to be amateurs and you know, whatever. Like it just doesn't make any damn sense. Yeah. One thing I wanna none, point out though, I wanna read this all, statement. Well. <laughs> you say what? No, no, go, go ahead, go ahead. I, I wanna read this statement from Justice Kavanaugh, which 
really stood out to me. Let's just say that. Really stood out to me. Let me pull it, pull it up real quick. So Justice Kavanaugh, um, who wrote about this decision, he said, quote, college presidents, athletic directors, coaches, conference commissioners, and NCAA executives take in six and seven figure salaries. Colleges build lavish new facilities, but the student athletes who generate the revenues many of whom are African-American and from lower-income backgrounds, end up with little or nothing. Jeff, is Justice Kavanaugh pointing out some racial inequities there? Is Justice I mean, Kavanaugh saying that there are racial disparities and inequities and exploitation going on? What? What? I, I very very much look forward to more from Justice Kavanaugh <laughs> on the various listen, racial listen, inequities okay. that exist listen. in higher education. I love that we have someone on the court oh, who's goodness. ready to call out those racial inequities and disparities and say, yo, this ain't right. Jeff, is he nah, a social no, 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 justice no, no. warrior, take, man? Take a deep breath, okay? Uh, <laughs> man, well, take a, take a very deep breath and pause for a moment because uh, the the I believe the axiom that that should govern this equation, Manuel, is that even a stopped clock is right twice a day. Okay, hey, if this is so, the first time, I'm looking forward <laughs> to the second time. Yeah. Okay. So you know, hey, credit where credit is due. He didn't, you know, f this one up. Okay. Um, this one is pretty obvious, and I'm glad they got it right. Hopefully, we'll see more of this from you know from the likes of Brett Kavanaugh. I'm not holding my breath. But, uh, you know, happy that this one came down the way it did. I, you know, I think your point about the NCAA's arguments here, just uh, in closing, I guess, is uh, is a really good one, Manuel. Like their argument was literally so ridiculously plantation-y circular, right? They're like, what we are protecting is amateurism. We have to protect amateurism, meaning not compensate the athletes at all, in order to protect this huge money-making operation that we have going on, because if it's not quote-unquote amateur, then we're going to lose all of our money and our revenue, and so will the conferences, and so will the universities, right? Like, that was their actual argument, right? They're like, we have to not pay these people, because if we pay them, then we won't make as much money as we're making now. That... What does that remind you of, man? Well, that is literally like plantation owner logic, okay? So this is what the NCAA is. I'm sure there are nice people working at the NCAA. In fact, I think a guy that I went to high school <laughs> works at the NCAA is a really nice person. However, <laughs> as an organization, it is as exploitative and crooked as it gets, particularly at the Division I level or whatever, you know, FCS, whatever the stupid acronym is right now, uh, the sports you see on TV every week, particularly at that level, okay? At the, you know, Division Three level, maybe there's a case to be made that they're doing some good. But this, this stuff is crazy, and I'm so glad that this court, that I, I wasn't expecting it, came down on the right side of morality and economics and Unanimously. racial justice and everything. Yeah, man. Yeah. Definitely a surprise. Nice summertime surprise. Yeah. All right, folks, that about does it for this week's Do Now. Up next is our seminar. Stay tuned. What's up, everybody? Thanks so much for watching All the Above. We really appreciate you. And it has been such a fantastic year for the show. All the support we've received has been incredible. 
There's two things you can do if you wanna support all the above right now. The first one is easy. All you gotta do is like and subscribe this episode. Give us that five-star rating. Every little click that you give helps us spread the word about all the above. The second thing is share it with someone who might like the show as well. So colleagues at work, family members, friends, neighbors, anybody who cares about this beautiful thing we call school and education, uh, pass the word on to them. Thanks so much, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you with us today. And we have a guest who we've been looking forward to having on now for, uh, for quite a while. Um, he is a principal from the city of Minneapolis, from Minneapolis Public Schools, uh, the epicenter of what has been, by all accounts, a bit of a national racial reckoning over the last year, year and a half or so. Um, and I think is going to be bringing just some valuable perspective to us on not only the issues of educating for equity and anti-racism in that context, um, but also, you know, some reflections on kind of the nature of school leadership and educating uh, during this this last tumultuous pandemic year. Uh, so welcome to all the above. Yusuf Abdullah, so good to have you on the show today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good to be here. All right, now let me tell you a little bit more about our guest, folks. Uh, this is Yusuf's 10th year as a school administrator for the Minneapolis Public Schools, and he just finished his sixth year as the principal of Patrick Henry High School in North Minneapolis. This year, Henry was considered by U.S. News & World Reports the number one high school in Minneapolis Public Schools and one of the top schools in the state of Minnesota. Yusuf leads through a social justice, equity, and community-based and student-centered lens. He prides himself on being a culturally responsive leader. He enjoys supporting young people throughout their life journey. He has also been married for 17 years and has three children, all of whom are Minneapolis public school students, including a 2020 graduate. He lives a personal philosophy that, quote, no one should go through life without giving back to what he has been given, end quote. Uh, Yusuf, welcome again to all the above. I'm gonna hand it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here, Yusuf. We know the life of a principal is a very busy life. And during this era of pandemic schooling, we've heard a lot about the experiences of, of students and of teachers, but we love to hear from you. What has your experience been as a principal during this time of pandemic schooling? And what leadership lessons are you taking away from this experience? Wow. I mean, that's a loaded question. Uh, we just finished school uh, yesterday in fact. And so uh, I felt like this opportunity uh, to be here with you was just a great opportunity for me to reflect as a principal. Um, but with that being said, a year and a half of distance learning, uh, getting, getting teachers to understand technology platform and communication tools and resources and supports along while managing their own anxiety or managing their anxiety. A lot of teachers will come up and, you know, share stories with me about what's going on with their family, the impacts that they're that it has on them and their families, um, you know, losing loved ones, uh, you know, we're, we're carrying a lot. Um, but what I'll say, um, some of my takeaways, I just wanted to share that some of my takeaways was, I really have to continue to work on, you know, who am I? Um, you know, just making sure I understand my identity. Um, 
personally, both personally and professionally, how do I show up in the midst of, of challenges? And, um, you know, let's just say this. They used to give me the ball when I used to play basketball to hit the game winner. Um, so I really was, uh, you know, used to being in, in, in challenging and crisis situations and trying to pull a team out. And, and that was one of the things that I understood. It's like, you know, how do I show up? Um, where are we going um, as a school, as a community? And then how do we get there? That was one of the things. Um, but it was also vital to understand how is all the things that surround us um, not only impacting me, but how is it impacting other people? Uh, they, you know, and, and it's not a one size fits all with the impact, right? And the other thing I believe, um, and what I've uh, continued to to work through was representation was extremely critical. Who is at the table? Who is speaking? How much are they taking up space um, and time? Um, and then what platforms do we have those people um, um, sharing and leading? And in other words, how are we how are we decentering whiteness um, through the midst of all of this? And um, as we have um, about uh, 75% um, of licensed teachers um, in the building um, and 92% students of color. How are we decentering whiteness? And through the midst of all of this, how do we make sure we have representation at each table uh, to be able to speak uh, in support of the students um, and the community? That was huge. Um, and I realized that uh, through some of the processes, the bureaucratic, bureaucratic processes, that doesn't work. So how do you handpick and put people in spaces to ensure that you're centering whiteness um, and just not just putting people of color in those spaces that represent our students, but making sure you have the right person um, to lead that work, especially if they're aligned with your leadership. Communication was huge. Um, if the, I was forced to do uh, video communication. I was forced to do written communication. And when they talk about principal school, you got to be able to communicate. I mean, that was that pushed me to the limit. Um, I had to make sure I understood my, my target audience. I had to make sure through the midst of it that I'm, I'm representing myself in the school in a, in a way that is, it's, uh, it, um, it was for the community. Um, and it just was, was just something that I continued to think about. I was getting sick and tired of doing videos, but it, I knew that a lot of my population at, at Henry definitely wanted to see the video versus in, uh, having to go to the website and things like that. So communication was huge. And then finally, self-care, as I talked about my own personal experience of trying to figure out whether I get the vaccine or not, um, as we're pushing through uh, um, the epic center of, of all the, the stuff that was going on. Um, and that's one of the biggest challenges that I personally have is how do I make sure I have that balance, make sure I'm there uh, mentally, physically, socially, uh, emotionally, making sure that I'm able to, to, to be able to sit down, relax, uh, focus, uh, eat well, exercise, and then get back to to work. Um, that's one of those things that I realized more than ever as my father passed away at the age of 67, my father-in-law passed away uh, early on, my uncles this year passed away before they hit 70. I'm 44. That means I don't have them, you know, if we look at it genetically, I may not have that much time left. Um, if I can preserve my life um, and take care of myself and create that balance, I know in these stressful uh, positions like principals or CEOs or principals of color in particular, though, uh, or professionals of color, we oftentimes um, have health concerns um, that outnumber our, our white counterparts. Um, and a lot of that could be the way we're eating. A lot of that is facing race um, and adversity at the forefront. 
Um, and it takes a toll on our on our on our lifespan. It takes a toll on our on our health and our ability to do work in a, in a more of a I would say healthy way. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, so much of what you are saying there about uh, the health uh, realities, not only for Black men, but for uh, you know Black male educators in leadership and educators of color in leadership generally. Uh, it is real. And I, I know for myself, I, the primary reason I left the principalship was, uh, was a, a motivated by health and, um, and feeling like I needed to make a decision that was putting my health first. And um, so it's, it's, uh, it's important, I think, what you said there, um, you know, about what you've been thinking about to take care of yourself in a year where that has maybe been harder um, than, it, than perhaps it ever has been. Um, Shifting gears a little bit, uh, we started, you know, this this segment talking about how you and your school, uh, Patrick Henry High School, is a part of Minneapolis Public Schools, the school district that has been at the epicenter of the the national racial reckoning, uprising, revolts, whatever you would like to call it, um, over the last year and a half. Uh, you know, being sparked especially by the um, the really traumatic murder of George Floyd. Um, and your school is just a few miles away from George Floyd Square and from the, you know, the site of that horrific video. Um, and more recently, uh, your school is just, uh, you know, <laughs> feet almost from Brooklyn Center. And uh, I came to find out that Dante Wright, um, who, of course, also captured national attention with his um, murder at the hands of Brooklyn Center Police, was a former uh, Patrick Henry High School student for a period of time. So with all of that going on and being in such close proximity to your, to your school, to the lives of your students, I wonder if you can share a little bit about just how your school community is doing and how the school community has managed um, with so much on the plate. Yes, yes. Um, it breaks my heart every time I, I have to process this. Um, um, but uh, I, I came to Henry High School in 2006 and um, I was in a career center and um, uh, I was a career and counseling coordinator. My job was to make sure that every student had a plan before they graduated. Um, and I left um, in 2010 um, as I got promoted to assistant principal just to come back um, four years later as the principal um, of Henry High School. And if I can go back to 2006, and even if I can go back to the beginning of me growing up, um, as I grew up in Racine, Wisconsin, and, and in fact, uh, I'm, I'm down here in Racine visiting a friend and family uh, for the weekend. Um, and I can remember um, losing um, students, losing classmates, um, losing uh, a lot of our students to either police brutality or violence or community violence. Um, and so it, it, it was just something that I always have to process and had to process as a young, as a young student. Um, but it's, it hit me differently as an adult, um, having to think through the loss of, uh, uh, I mean, the George Floyd murder and, and the loss of uh, Dante Wright and and we lost eight students um, this past year through the midst of all this stuff that's going on, eight students. Um, and each time it doesn't get any easier. And in fact, one of the things that we used to do is we just used to send an email if you wanna have a, you know, optional staff meeting and then we'll just keep it pushing. 
And um, we felt like Henry High School, we needed to do something a little bit differently. Um, you know, and, and not to compare to white schools, um, but they have a different process for how they deal with loss and, and grief and, um, and students and, and whatnot. And one of the things we shifted even before all of this was we started to name them. We started to name it. Uh, we started to call it out. We started to say their names. Um, and, um, and we really wanted to make sure that we didn't dismiss our reality. Um, as much as we say we don't want this to be our reality, it w it's our present day reality, something that Henry High School, the Northside community of Minneapolis has to deal with. Um, now, through the process, you know, we always got, you know, call a staff meeting, you got your talking points, the media wants to interview you, another loss, wants to paint a bad rap on a kid or the community. Um, and then we started to start, you know what, we got to do better. We got to do better. So then we started to really analyze uh, the, the the genius and the brilliance in these students. And so whenever I got an interview, it always uplift the, the the person, humanize the the, the the student that we lost. Um, but we also tried to figure out, like, uh, it, as a as a black principal, I'm always thinking about, um, you know, what is our role as a school? Uh, are we are we charged with having these conversations? Um, and then we again, when I talked about the the, the gap between our teachers of color uh, or our white teachers and our students of color, it's not, my mind was playing tricks on me. Um, am I comfortable with these teachers having these conversations with these students? Um, are our teachers viewing our students as if they don't have parents of their own to process some of the things that's going on in our community? Um, a lot of things just start to un unravel um, in my head in terms of, because guess what? I have a student at Henry High School and guess what we do? We talk about these things, we process these things. So then we started to really think about, okay, what is it that we, what's the role of the teacher and how do we have these conversations in the classroom? We're not dismiss it, but how do we make sure that we're, that we have a productive conversations? Uh, we're creating safe spaces. We recognize triggers and when to back off, when to push. Oftentimes some of our teachers will put their own um, grief in their own way of processing onto the students and that uh, wasn't always conducive. So I was always leery about that practice. I know the district and other people have ways to deal with it. Um, I saw lesson plans on how to have these conversations in the classroom, but there were some critical pieces that are just missing in terms of how are we looking at our students and how are we looking at our families Are we have as we have these conversations. And that's the piece where I think that we can get better at, we can build upon, um, and, and we can really think about how race show up, especially if you got that dynamic, the white um, and students of color dynamic in the, in the school, uh, how are we really, really approaching it? Are we saving our students or are we supporting our students? And oftentimes what, what you'll find in students of color is they don't even wanna, wanna talk about it so much, right? It exists and then they kind of just like, from one classroom to the next, you got the teacher acknowledging it and then students are kind of backing off and saying, here we go again. Um, but, you know, I know we got some some powerhouse uh, staff at Henry High School. I know that they're trying their best. And I know that in some spaces uh, they're knocking out of the ballpark and other spaces. There's just a level of uncertainty there. Um, but I do think our students are, are, are giving our staff grace, knowing that we're trying, appreciate that at least the acknowledgement that this is happening and really process with our students. What's the next steps? What do we do about it now? The other thing that I'm struggling with and what we have to balance is, is our staff of color. They're fine. They're, they're constantly are, are um, having to talk about it. They're constantly have to process. They have to process with themselves. They have to process with students. They have to process with some of our white staff and they're getting fatigued, 
right? And so, you know, in those spaces, and then also we we, we created affinity spaces for for those conversations, right? And what happens in the in, in the staff of color affinity space, and what happens in the, in the white affinity space looks too different. But we at least try to provide an opportunity for our staff of color just to be able to express. They might not even talk about. They might not even be talking about uh, what happened in our community. They might be just talking about <laughs> the, the fatigue of just constantly having to to show up and 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 be present when we have our own struggles as we're processing through that. We don't do a really good job of taking care of our staff of color through the midst of all that. And in fact, we put a lot of pressure on them. And I'm a witness of that. And oftentimes, when I showed up in those affinity spaces, you know, I was trying to. Um, be mindful of the space, but I oftentimes find myself sharing the same, you know, concerns as our staff of color, as I represent um, myself as a staff of color, but yet the leader that is trying to take care of a school community. So we're kind of finding ourselves um, not all over the place, but being intentional. But I do think that we can get better at making sure that our our staff and our and our students and our community um, have options in terms of what supports they need. Dope, dope. Now, speaking of staff members, just over a year ago, we had two of your staff members on this show to discuss anti-racist schooling. That was Ariel Roca and Alex Lander, two super dope educators, I might add. And we're wondering, as a principal of a large, comprehensive high school, how have you approached leading efforts for culturally responsive teaching and racial equity at your school site? <laughs> Yeah, remember I told you, you know, I was I did I wanted that ball, so throw me that ball and <laughs> I'll hit the game winner. Um, and sometimes you strike out when you do that, and sometimes um, you're 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 the man um, or the athlete. Um, but really, you do have to be bold and courageous. Um, you have to kind of, you know, and that's why you have to kind of just know who you are. You know, we continue to talk about identity for students, but shoot, identity for staff is valid is just as important, right? Know who you are, know how you show up. Uh, know your triggers. Um, um, and so I always come at it through a more of a personal lens, um, just centering myself um, first. Um, but then, you know, for us, we we really, really depended on a strategic plan. Um, my first year coming to Henry High School, um, you know, I, I really just kind of walked the halls, walked and had conversations with many people. And there was no real sense of where we're going as a school. Um, and so I worked with a, a company. We helped. Um, we we develop a, a process to be able to get inf- you know to get information from key stakeholders, student staff, community members. And we created a World Cafe opportunity um, uh, to be able to kind of talk to the families about where and students where you want to see Henry High School in the next five years. Um, and you know, when oftentimes when you're doing strategic plan, I mean, the strategic plan is only as good as the people that was at the table. Um, so again, one of those things where you talk about making sure you have representation, we had great representation. Of course, our students and our families were students, were people of color, um, but then you have to be intentional about staff, who who do you want at the table, um, and, and diversify that as well, as far as community members and as far as uh, district leadership. Who is at the table as you're really rolling this out to have a more of a diverse, but really a perspective of the community and a perspective of the students, and let that drive your work. Uh, for us, uh, we landed on, you know, we 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 had a bold outline on equity. Uh, we we raised race to uh, the forefront, and we oftentimes had dismantling white supremacy within the verbiage of the of of our mission, vision, core belief on equity, and our pillars. Our pillars were culturally responsiveness, uh, caring and supportive environment, connection to family, community, and college. 
career and life ready. Now that sounds pretty plain, but once you go into the body of those pillars, now you start to see the meat and gravy. And I tell you, uh, Alex and Ari embodied that strategic plan. Um, everything that they thought of, everything that they wanted, I mean, from the project-based, uh, um, you know, learning to trauma-informed, to community-based, to anti-racist and culturally responsive pedagogy, was all wrapped up into the strategic plan. So when they had the concept and idea uh, of wanting to start a program with the support of an outside funding agency, um, I was right there at the table. We started to scratch out and etch out uh, what this could look like. I gave them a couple things that I would like to see in it, and those two ran away with it. The bomb. Ari and Alex, I got to give them a, a, a wonderful shout out. The bomb. Um, and um, it has been a model of, of uh, being student center and, and, and having opportunities where students can feel welcome, supported, see themselves in the curriculum, see themselves in the school, see themselves in the future, um, and really focus on identity through the process. Uh, uh, definitely instrumental in the work that we're moving forward, but it was really, you know, we had a, had a, um, a plan that was developed by the people for the students that, that we serve. And um, it's just a matter of making sure that we stay true to that, that, uh, that plan. Um, and so it just allowed us to kind of um, really um, allowed us to, to just move the work forward. Uh, you know, and, and, and Ari and, and Alex are two people, but there's other people who are, have embodied the strategic plan um, and have, have done some, some really creative work uh, with uh, the plan being at the forefront and and the foundation for, for thinking innovatively, creatively, and um, collaboratively. Nice. Well, I think we got to mark this day in uh, education history, uh, Yusuf, because it's it's not every day that uh, you know teachers and counselors who are working hard uh, get get their principal on uh, you know international television calling their work the bomb. So we we we're, <laughs> we're gonna uh, give a, a you know just a, a moment to acknowledge that that happened today, and uh, you know spe special shout out to the homie Alex and uh, to Ari. Uh, doing great work at the Community Connected Academy, uh, which is part of uh, Patrick Henry High School. So um, that's right. That's right. Yes, indeed. Um, now, uh, oh, and I'll just say this. I'll say this, you guys. Uh, um, <clears throat> I got a chance to watch Alex and Ari uh, when they were with you guys uh, some months ago. And <laughs> I remember Alex saying this uh, very clearly. Some of this leadership needs to get out of the way. And I, I, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. When you got people in your building that's doing great things, all they need is the support, the backing, the resources, and then get out of the way. Mm. Uh, black belt leadership uh, sermon right there from <laughs> from Yusuf for sure. Uh, very much appreciate that. Um, so for for our last question uh, today, Yusuf, um, we want to uh, maybe switch a little bit, switch gears a little bit, and kind of uh, look forward. And there has been, you know, just uh, a, a tidal wave of talk over the last uh, probably six to eight months, especially I would say, about the need to quote reimagine school for the coming school year. And that uh, conversation has also, as it's kind of taken shape, 
um, in many, many corners of our profession has become grounded in this idea of addressing uh, so-called learning loss, right? Um, and how, you know, what is the learning loss kids have experienced? How are we going to mitigate against that learning loss or recover learning loss, that sort of thing? Um, now, I'm wondering from your perspective, what are you actually looking forward to in the coming year? How are you thinking about what is going to be you know, needed for students, for educators? What are your kind of hopes and aspirations for sort of getting school right as we move into um, the, the, the upcoming school year? Yes, 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 great question. Um, first and foremost, I, I, I do think that, um, um, you know, that old saying, um, uh, a person without a plan is planning to fail. Um, and um, I, I, I really think that the, the strategic planning process was was a great process for us where it's not we, um, the people telling uh, or staff or school personnel saying, this is what we need to do, um, but more so working with the collective um, in terms of uh, how to do that. Now, when I talked about the strategic plan prior to, or in the last question, I'm, I'm going back to now, um, we went through the strategic planning process again, believe it or not, um, through the midst of all of this. Um, I had one person that uh, um, is outside of the building. I was telling him, hey, we're going right through, we're going to start the strategic planning process over again. Because after five years, you now you want to revisit. Is, is this the right plan? It couldn't have happened at a better time because because um, we got a chance to evaluate, are we, are, is this what we want? I mean, with all that happened, George, you know, Floyd, Derek, uh, Dante Wright, and um, some of the murders that we've had in our community, um, COVID-19, is that we, we, yeah, the time is now. And, um, and, and I really um, worked again, worked that community work. I mean, we had um, a language specific um uh, what we call world cafes. So we had Latinx, we had Somali, we had Hmong language specific um, where we wanted to bring in more voices. We had English specific where folks um, came to the table. We had we had seven classrooms uh, of students uh, really diving into where do they want the school to go next. Um, so we, we did it, we did it again. Exhausting as it was this year, uh, I didn't feel like we needed to let go. I think it was an opportunity that we need to seize um, people were, were in their feelings, people were in their heads, people were determined to to see something different. Um, and then we did it. We, we, we went through that whole process and we have uh, a new vision, a new mission. Um, we're still working on our pillars. We have values now that we're going to stand on. And this is all developed by the people. This is all developed by the community. This is developed by the students. And so I'm really excited. Um, on Monday is our professional development for the last week, and I'm really excited to um, to really launch the next five years of Henry High School. Now, with that being said, that is easier said than done, right? Because uh, the trauma that our community have been inflicted on, um, the the the, the social emotion that that our students are going to be coming with. The some of the students have been in haven't been in school for a whole year and a half. Um, our ninth grade students. 
um, are going to come back. And oftentimes ninth grade students are squirrely, um, you know, as ninth grade students. But we're going to have now that whole crew have who haven't been in a the school. They're going to be 10th graders. Right. So now we're going to have almost two sets of young students who are trying to transition. And not only that, the, the 11th graders who saw their their, their junior um, and their sophomore year kind of crumble in some cases. Now they're going to be seniors. And how do we get them to make sure that they're taken care of so they can lead their underclassmen? So we got our hands full. Um, but I, I believe that uh, we're going to be approaching this. I think um, I don't think I know we're going to be using Goldie Muhammad's book cultivating genius and her framework. Uh, we're going to be doing professional development around that work. Um, we're going to also look at collaboration um, and make, make sure that our her framework is, is embedded in our collaborations as teachers are meeting and coming up with lessons. We're also going to be looking at our overall school system using a strategic plan, but also um, you know, how do we make sure that we uplifting the, the genius and the brilliance of our students? How do we make sure we hear their stories so that we can really see what not did they lose in this last year and a half, but then what did they really gain? Um, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, like I said, I didn't know if I mentioned this, but I got a student that is at Henry High School. Um, and I have a, had a graduate that was a class of 2020. I'm not just doing this work for just just because uh, um, you know I, I need a salary. I'm doing this work because I'm very passionate about it. I got my own kids in that school, and I'm determined to move uh, and, and the, the needle forward and and really really do what's best for our our community uh, with analyzing race, with anti-racist uh, approaches and pedagogy, um, learning from our 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 leaders across the country who have done the research to back the work that we're doing up. And then making sure that I have the team and the squad around me um, and, and around each other so that we have a mass critical that is at every single table when we're making decisions that can dismantle the, the, the oppressive system in which we work in. Mm. Wow. So much there uh, from, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the embracing and the use of uh, Dr. Golden Muhammad's, um, you know, cultivating genius uh, text and her framework around culturally and historically responsive education. Uh, shout out to Goldie Muhammad, who's been a, a guest here on the show as well. Mm. Um, and uh, it's just so refreshing, uh, Yusuf, to hear um, to hear a principal voice uh, speaking to not only the need for, but the process of working to institute the type of um, you know culturally affirming and identity affirming and um, you know really community centered um, approach to education that I that I think. Personally, at least, I think we need uh, much more of um, across the country and um, to have been leading that work in the midst of a year that is just undoubtedly uh, one of the hardest we've ever seen. You know, I think a lot of America has gotten perspective on what it has been like for teachers um, over this past year and how hard it's been for teachers because of the nature of Zoom you know, school and people being in, you know, parents and things being in the classroom in a different way than, than we've ever seen. But a lot of folks, you know, maybe didn't have as much perspective on just how challenging this year has been for administrators and for principals, especially, um, you know, having to juggle the needs of, of let's figure out how to recreate school, the emotional <laughs> needs of teachers and staff, as well as the students in the community. And I know there's just a lot on your shoulders. So I um, want to give 
just some acknowledgement to you for uh, for carrying that um, over this year and uh, continuing with that weight on your shoulders to lead this important work um, with your staff. So um, Yusuf Abdullah, thank you so much for joining us uh, here on All the Above. Such a pleasure to have you today. Thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Next up is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we have reached that time in the episode. Class dismissed, where we like to shout out folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. We need some positive news, Jeff, some good stuff. What we got today for class dismissed? Yes, indeed, man. Well, we got a just a heartwarming story um, that I happened to, uh, you know, catch wind of recently. And um, other folks may have caught wind of because this young person um, whose name is Pilar Diaz Bombino, um, who just graduated from Jordan High School in Watts um, here in Los Angeles, was featured in a piece in the Los Angeles Times um, in, in late June. And she is just a an amazing, perseverant young person uh, with an incredible story. So earlier in the month of June, she became a U.S. citizen. A few days later, she spoke at her high school graduation. Um, and now she is on her way to uh, her dream school uh, and her mother's dream school for her, which was, uh, which is UCLA. Um, and this young woman has just an incredible story. She um, she and her mother are immigrants from the country of Cuba, um, you know, got a visa to come to the United States, moved to Florida, then relocated to Los Angeles, um, growing up in the housing developments in Watts, obviously facing, you know, a lot of the like societal neglect um, that that plagues our country. Um, but persevered through that, you know, did really well in school, finished um, at the, you know, the top of her class and is on her way to, um, to your favorite school, Manuel, the University of California at Los Angeles. And, um, you know, just an amazing story. And I will say uh, she attends a school that is one of the schools I have the privilege of working with in my regular day job. And um, I had the privilege of hearing her uh, come and speak at a recent staff meeting um, and share some of the words that she shared with her graduating class. So uh, just an incredibly powerful story, an amazing young woman who is off to UCLA to do incredible things, um, you know, in college and a great example of what is possible when we, you know, work to remove barriers that are placed in front of young people and, and unleash their their hopes and dreams for themselves. So shout out to Pilar. Um, you know, so inspired by you and best of luck this fall starting up at UCLA. Go Bruins. Yeah, yeah. So so two things about that. First of all, super dope story. Phenomenal. Very proud. Very proud of her. Although I, I never met her, obviously. But secondly, it's not so much that UCLA is my favorite school, Jeff. It's just that it's the, the world's number one rated public university. And uh, okay. like just as a completely unbiased person here. Like, I just think, you know, even though I don't subscribe so much to, to, to world rankings, still, number one, huh, that's, you know, that's kind of big time. So, yeah, go Bruins. And also, I want to shout out Educolor. So, I've mentioned before that they are having a summit, a virtual summit, this summer. 
If you listen to the show, if you watch the show, if you enjoy any of this content, you for sure would enjoy what you get from Educolor. So educolor.org, there is a virtual summit on July 23rd, Friday, July 23rd, and it's um, gonna be packed full of really dope, uplifting, humanizing content. We are gonna have, or they're gonna have speakers from from all across the nation, some really phenomenal folks, including this year's National Teacher of the Year. And uh, it's just a really uplifting space. I, I uh, attended the summit last summer, the virtual summit last summer, and it just really helped recharge me for the upcoming school year. So I definitely recommend everybody who is listening or watching, check it out, educolor.org, E-D-U-C-O-L-O-R.org, and uh, see more information there. So yeah. And also, also, if you haven't already given us those five stars, rated us, reviewed us, we would very much appreciate that. That really does go a long way uh, to help us out algorithms and all that. All right. So we love y'all. We hope you appreciated this episode. Thumbs up, subscribe, all that good stuff. AOTAshow.com to see all the past episodes and all of our content and find out um, where you can get some dope AOTA show merch and all kinds of stuff. All right. So AOTAshow.com. All right, y'all. See you next time. <laughs>